friends, I'm Lizzie Heiselt. And I'm Valerie Best, and we're back with the last part of David and Kristen's story. In part one, we heard about David's decision to adopt a five-year-old child as a single man, about his hopes of being able to provide a loving home to a child who needed one, of the divine guidance he felt that led him to Carlos and then to Jonathan, and the mortal help he gave and received as he took on the role of dad to his two high-need sons. Some people in David's life had been worried that having a child would decrease his chances of finding a life partner. But Kristen, though initially hesitant, was not completely deterred from marrying David and starting their life together along with two boys and her daughter from a previous marriage. In part two, we talked about the birth of their two daughters, Irish twins born just under a year apart, followed by the diagnosis of their older daughter with Rett disease, a rare neurological condition that affects a girl's ability to walk, talk, eat, and even breathe without difficulty, and that will, if treatments are not developed quickly, most likely be the cause of her untimely death. In this final part, we talk more with Kristen about their decision to have one more child, and how that turned out to be a much bigger deal than they could have possibly imagined. So if you haven't heard the first two parts, you may want to listen to those before you move forward here. Though, truth be told, this is also a standalone story. What you really need to know as we begin the story is that Kristen and David have three older children, the two high-needs boys David adopted, plus Kristen's daughter from her first marriage, along with two young girls they've had together. First of all, we have two small children. We weren't thinking about another one right away at all. And then Emmeline had the difficulty she had. Um, so by the time we were thinking about another baby, which we both definitely wanted, by then it was hard to get pregnant. I'm sure just due to age, because it never had been before. Um, so we tried for quite a while. It had to be at least a year. And the doctor was like, the OB was like, I think you should try the fertility. Had a miscarriage. Yeah, it had a miscarriage. Um, and he's like, I think you should try this fertility guide, IVF. All, he does everything. So we did. And that took a while, too. It wasn't quick at all. Um, luckily I had this great, I still have this great insurance and it covered a lot of um, cycles of IVF and it covered most of the medications and so we never could have done it I don't think without that. But because of age it wasn't like there were a lot of eggs and even from the eggs there were not a lot of embryos and we went through one round, two round, no viable embryos. We had them all tested if there was an embryo genetic testing just so we wouldn't, you know, transfer an embryo and then it didn't work out and we'd lose more time. And finally in the third round, which was the last one that the insurance would pay for, um, there was one embryo, there were several embryos, but one that came out genetically with no negative results. So the doctor I mean, this guy is as good as they come. <laughs> he was like, we are doing everything perfect. There's no way you're not having a baby from this embryo. <laughs> Kristen blew by it a little bit, but did you hear that they had a miscarriage? And while Kristen seemed to be eager to get to the end of the story, we're gonna go back and talk about that miscarriage before the third round with the one embryo that came out normal, champion embryo. And actually, there was more than one miscarriage. The first two were during their IVF cycle, so they knew pretty quickly that they weren't viable. And, you know, we knew at about eight weeks that it wasn't viable. Um, 
and it still took, so it was about three months for it to kind of naturally end, which was difficult when you're kind of counting time. Yeah. And, and so then we continued to try, and then when we went to the IVF doctor, um, or fertility doctor, um, and we started to kind of gear up for that, all of a sudden we found out she was pregnant again. And, and we thought, ah, you know, like Heavenly Father's decided to bless us, yeah. our miracle, whatever, this way we don't have to, because even though insurance, you know, insurance covered 70% of the cost, it's still, you know. And it's difficult. I mean, just, it's a process. All of it. So we were just so thrilled that, you know, uh, be able to not have to go through that. And pregnancy was going great. And, um... It was in the second trimester, I think, around 16 it was, weeks? It was right at the end of oh, the was first. It? Yeah. All right. And they were doing the scan that they do, like the big let's look at everything scan. It was far enough along that everyone thought everything was great and, yeah. and no risk we anymore. Do, now we told everyone. And so it was the first time I didn't even go with her to get the scan and stuff. And Well, you went with me to get the scan, the big no, scan. No, I didn't. Remember, he was moving... It was really well, yeah, exciting. Well, yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. And the woman doing the scan, she kept saying, this is a perfect fetus. Perfect. Like she was amazed. Right. And she measured everything Little she could measure. And, and feet, he just seemed to have so much personality. And um, not long after that, like within a week, the doctor called who'd done the blood tests where you can find out the sex. And he said, all, all those tests were great. Everything was perfect. And it was a boy. We were so excited because we didn't have a baby boy before. The miracle of having gotten pregnant on their own after the failed IVF, combined with the apparent enthusiasm the ultrasound tech had at having scanned this perfect fetus, really cemented their bond with the unborn baby. Everything was going well. This is going to work out perfectly, right? The week after that ultrasound, Kristen had a regular appointment, and for the first time, David didn't come with her. So I get there, and the doctor, his um, ultrasound machine is not as great, because he just needs to check a couple quick things, but he did a scan every time, just in case. So he's scanning, and I'm looking at it, I'm like, uh, Dr. H? Because I could see there was no heartbeat. He's like, I know, I know, just wait. And he's like, I'm going to send you down to the lady who does the, the really good scans with her machine. He said, I know you see what I see, but I'll just send you there anyway, just to make absolutely sure. He said, I want to be wrong. <laughs> but he wasn't wrong. So that was horrible. Just horrible. Like, I mean, you've done a lot of interviews with people who have been through that, and it just, it's completely devastating. And... Everyone's a little different, I think, in their experience, but um, this time I felt like those previous two miscarriages, it never seemed like a baby yet. In one case, it really wasn't. It didn't even really develop, but this time it felt like that was somebody we were already counting on. <laughs> like Not that we had a name for the baby, but it felt really real, and to see a move like that just a week before, so it was hard. I had been at Costco grocery shopping and um, and just had this thought I should look at my phone and I saw there were several messages from her. So she had gone through and gone to the second scan already on her own. Um, 
I just remember punching the cereal box. That was about it. It was and shaking as I tried to buy the food because I knew we still needed food for the family. Um, and you know when they later when you went to the hospital um, before they did the removal procedure, right? Um, I remember she said as they were kind of getting ready to do it, she said, do you think I can ask him to just do one more scan to make sure? And and it's just, it's funny, all those emotions you have, right? I ended up saying, oh, sweetie, it's, you know. And then ended up feeling guilty later, thinking, but what if they had been right, that maybe I should have gone along with her and said, yeah, let's make sure they do it. You know, there's just all these emotions you so desperately want it to not be right what is happening when something goes wrong in, in that instance. After that devastating miscarriage, they were even more desperate to have another baby, almost like they were hoping to bring that perfect baby back, like they'd been counting on him and they already considered him to be part of their family. It was just a matter of reaching out into the darkness and feeling around until they found him and can pull him into the light. Of course, they couldn't know what reaching out into the darkness would mean for them, but it's possible that without that hope, without that desperation, without the sense that he was already a part of their family and just needed a little extra help to cross the line into life, that they would not have had the determination to soldier on through what was to come next. The challenges actually started before the pregnancy did. Because this was an IVF-assisted pregnancy, Kristen had to get so many shots just to give the embryo a chance. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many shots she did. Um, Kristen had gone, she went to an ice skating uh, youth activity. And this was um, the week before the transfer of that one embryo was supposed to happen, your champion embryo. The champion embryo. And she slipped getting... Like leaving the ice, taking a step off the ice. Tore her MCL and her ACL and her knee. And so they ended up putting her in a brace, straight brace. Um, And so because of that, she also ended up, I think it was about three months into the pregnancy. Was it even that? Oh, yeah. So I go, I tell the doctor, I'm like, can you do a transfer with my legs straight out? (laughs) He's like, oh, I've never done that. Shouldn't be a problem. (laughs) It wasn't a problem as far as the pregnancy was concerned to transfer the embryo while she was in a leg brace. The transfer happened, the embryo implanted, and the pregnancy officially began. But because of the surgery, the pregnancy, and the medications, within the first few months, Kristen started noticing some worrying signs. I didn't know this, but estrogen is a really high risk factor for blood clots. So where were we in the pregnancy? Three months or four? It was like three. And my ankles are swelling. I'm like, this is way too early for ankle. I don't know why it was, like, there was no pain and there was nothing weird. Your ankles swell when you're pregnant. But I just felt weird and scared about it. So I tell my brother, who's a doctor, I called him. He's like, ER right now, now. (laughs) I was like, oh, crap. So we go to the ER and they do whatever they do, Doppler. They're like, you have like four blood clots in your leg. And they, they say, okay, you're going to have to do these shots for the rest of the pregnancy twice a day. And I had just stopped taking all the, because you got to take those shots for 12 weeks. You've, You've done all the shots for shots. IVF, yeah. three rounds. Then you're doing shots for whatever it is. I don't even know what I'm taking anymore for 12 weeks into the pregnancy. 
And now I'm going to take shots the rest of the pregnancy <laughs> twice like a, a day. Thinner? Yeah. Yeah. So they can't give you heparin, but it's something similar. Love an ox. Yeah. It has this I love how it's got <laughs> love in it. I'm like, it's not. It's like or nox, I guess. It kills the love. It's but like one of those antidepressants. That it's like yeah. Wellbutrin. <laughs> You're yes. like, all right. I, I steal yeah. the microphone from her just because it was awful. Every shot would leave like this quarter-sized bruise. bruise and sometimes bigger than that. And so she'd have to keep switching around to try to find a place on her body that wasn't bruised. I'd numb it with ice before and after. Because there actually were much more painful shots than the IVF Mm -hmm. shots. Bigger needle. Did you give it to yourself? Or did they give it to you? Oh, wow. She gave it to herself. I had to give it to myself because I couldn't stand it any other way, even though I couldn't stand that either. But you get used to it, but... You get used to it in a way, but you still hate it every single time. And we like counted up how many hundred shots it was going to be. And it was just so awful. So now we have that, right? And of course, I have to go to an extra doctor for that. So I have all the regular appointments and then all the high risk appointments because when you're over 40, you have to. And then I have all the hematologist appointments. (laughs) So it's driving me completely crazy already. At that point, although Kristen was into the second trimester and miscarriage was less likely, she and David still had a very hard time trusting that it was real. It wasn't until she was about five months along that they felt like they could tell family members about the pregnancy. And even then they worried about having to untell them if something went wrong. Every appointment, every scan felt fraught, like anything could happen, and that anything could be something very bad. Constantly, every time you go in, you're just waiting for the, the bad news, and then it's like you've won the lottery every time when the heart's still beating or the whatever, but until I, the next, you know, two days when you've gone for the next That scan, was the worst like. part for sure, but even after, everyone was like, hey, you're all good. Oh, yeah, because that's what they had said we with totally the other one. We were on the you edge know. of our seats. And with each of these things, the blood clots, the diabetes, and oh, and at 18 weeks. Oh, my and gosh. We're at one of Taylor's concerts Ugh. at school, and I start bleeding. I'm like, really? And cramping, like bad. Cramping, like and, contractions. And we, we left with her up there singing on the stage or whatever. Taylor didn't even know we were going. And, and I'm driving like a madman to the, <clears throat> the hospital, and the whole time I'm just so angry at God saying, you can't do this to us again. And, you know. I had an infection, but... And it was causing... And it was causing contractions, yeah. Yeah, yeah that happened to me at the very, near the, quite near the end of my pregnancy, that the doctor told me um, that it's, I mean, it's like totally fascinating that your body recognizes that it's no longer like a safe place for the child and so it starts trying to expel the child. The doctors were able to treat the infection and stop the contractions but the experience definitely added to the precarious feeling of the pregnancy and the sense that Kristen's body was struggling to fulfill its job of keeping both her and the baby alive. For the next few months Kristen endured the additional shots and doctor appointments And then, at seven months, she went in for the glucose screening test and failed. So she's put on a diabetes-friendly diet and sent to the hematologist as well. And this is where Kristen really found her limits and had to stand her ground lest she fall off a cliff into madness. The hematologist kept checking my iron, which drops anyway when you're pregnant. And she's like, there's all these different measures for iron. 
So the actual like hemoglobin number was fine. In fact, it was fantastic. But the numbers that are kind of behind that, like what is going to give you the hemoglobin number, were so, 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 like incredibly low. So she's freaked out. We've got to do iron transfusions. You've got to come in once a week and sit there in the chair, like the chemo chair, right? Mm -hmm. And get iron transfused directly in IV. I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. I asked all the other doctors I had to, and some were like, you have to do it, and some were like, do what you want. So I didn't do they it. They were all like yes and no, but there seemed to be just no agreement. And I just remember she was at that point in time just, she was done. You know, just done and, and crying over it and crying about whether or not she was doing the right thing. And just, you know, I mean, I, a lot of emotions and all of that kind of stuff. And you just want to do the right thing. Yeah. For, you know, but I think she really couldn't face... I think she just couldn't face one more thing. It was just awful. You want to do the right thing. You don't want to mess this up. The one normal embryo. The baby boy whom they had been counting on. It's a lot of weight. A lot to process and hold and carry. Along with the weight of the baby itself. Christian really was up against a wall or looking over the edge of a cliff in a very difficult place. What could happen if she didn't have these iron infusions? Would she lose the baby? Would she lose herself? Was it even okay that she asked the questions that suggested that maybe she wasn't willing to sacrifice her own mental and emotional well-being for the sake of the baby that she also very much wanted? I think that's such an interesting point because, like, you know, and it, this is, like, so much in the news that, you know, you're this... You kind of turn into a host and everyone has an expectation of what you need to do yeah. to be a good host. They're like treating the machine. That's, exact, that's exactly right. right. And I think, and it starts to feel like that too, you know, that you're subject to these expectations yeah. of strangers who are not living your life. Yeah. Who have not seen your belt of bruises apparently. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it can be so, I mean, this is just, personal we'll cut this out but I think it can be so dehumanizing to just feel yeah that you're just this incubator you know and, yeah uh, and you know why they're doing it they want they're doing whatever their experience and their books tell them is the best thing for the health but I don't think they're really considering the sort of psychological health part of it and I realized that only I could decide that part yeah and even the other stuff they were giving me I already knew from other reading there was a chance that none of that was necessary. And the hematologist, to her credit, she supported me, even though she'd clearly come down on the side of, you have to do this. And I told her, I said, as long as my hemoglobin is this high, keep checking it. But I don't see any reason to. Clearly, if this, what is it, transferrin is low, whatever it is, if it's low, it's, somehow it's not affecting the hemoglobin number. So I'm not doing it. And it was like the first time I ever like took charge of the decision. I'd always just done whatever they said I should do. Any doctor. Yeah. And it, it was a different feeling for me, like in a good way. I'm like, I feel okay with this decision. I did my reading. I checked with all these different doctors. And then I made up my mind what's best for me. And it had a lot to do with my emotional health in that particular case. 
Kristen knew that the doctors were following their training and doing their best to keep the baby alive and healthy, but they were not necessarily trained to take into account the well-being of the mother. Only Kristen could do that. It was a scary experience for her to find and hold that boundary, to say, I matter too, and then to wonder what the consequences might be for the baby she dearly wanted and needed to protect. But then, from the beginning of the process of bringing this third baby into the world, Kristen and David had felt that, despite the odds, things would work out. I, I just kept thinking, would say yeah, like the numbers were so of the IVF being successful and after the loss of the, you're just like, Ugh. so, you know. But somehow we felt exceptional. Well, <laughs> we got lucky, work. didn't we? We did get lucky for sure. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I couldn't bear the thought of doing all that and then it doesn't work. No. Like I just couldn't uh, fathom, yeah, I mean, even I though was, I knew that could very well happen. I was ready after the first round just because I saw how difficult it was. We to were say both it's like, okay. never mind. But, well, you were the one who wanted to keep... And we did really the second round, going. and after the second round, we didn't even have any viable embryos. And I was just like, forget it. And the doctor was on the phone with me, and he said, he said, listen, I'm just telling you my best expert opinion and advice. If we get one genetically normal embryo, you will have a baby. And he was right. I mean, I, at the time, I was like, how can he say that? What if it doesn't happen? But he was giving me his real advice. He knew that if the embryo yeah, was normal, was sell us not he at was all. He was really, he knew we were ready to quit. And, yeah. and he knew that, that if we did, we might not have a baby. And if we stuck with it, we probably would. Mm -hmm. And I think even if, if the third round hadn't gone, he would have encouraged us if we wanted to spend the money to pay for a fourth round ourselves. Because he knew if he could just get that one embryo that he could make it happen. Balancing that trust in the doctors with trust in herself felt really risky, and it was an added risk in what was already a very risky, difficult pregnancy. The blood clots, the bruises, the shots, the doctors, the drugs. At the time, it felt like Kristen might get lost, become invisible, in all of the concern for the baby. But not only was Kristen able to keep an eye on herself and her own limits and boundaries, she also kept an eye on the whole picture. She is firm in her perspective that even if she had known how hard the pregnancy would be going into it, she still would have gone into it. Absolutely. So my sister had done IVF as well. She had trouble getting pregnant with all four of her kids. And it was just, um, it was just medication, oral medications for the first two. And then she did IVF with the last two. And I remember saying to her more than once, you know, her two little boys were born between Annabeth and Levi. She had both IVF babies. And it wasn't, you know, so easy for her either. But um, I remember saying, you know, you go through... So I'd sort of been through that kind of with her a little bit, at least the sort of way it makes you feel. And I remember saying to her, you know, you went through all that, and now here's your kid. He's already two months old. And uh, like I said, this is what I'm sort of pinning all my vision on that eventually it's all done and there's the kid and then none of that matters anymore and that really is how it feels so I felt like you know not at every moment but I really felt like this was gonna work somehow <laughs> we both did and it you know sometimes you feel guilty or because you know there are a lot of people who went through as much or more and it didn't have that ending in any way 
and the, you know, it makes me feel somehow not wrong exactly if it worked out for me, but like, I don't want to proclaim that to everybody, right? How happy I am and how joyful it is that that worked out because I know how that would feel if it hadn't. It's hard any way you look at it to know what to do now when you don't know what comes next. Could this treatment change the outcome? Will this come back to haunt us in a few weeks, a few months? Will we look back 20 years from now and wish we had done things differently? Each period of time you look at could bring different answers, different choices, different results. So what do you do? You do the best you can. You keep one eye on yourself and one eye on the prize, and you just keep working to bring them into the same picture. You want to make a difference in the lives of children in a meaningful, lasting way? Maybe that leads you to become a single dad. You believe that out there, somewhere, there is someone who needs you, so you reach out and search around until you find them. You hope for an odds-defying miracle, and so you defy your own expectations of yourself, sacrificing your comfort for a time in the hope of better things and a better you in the future. With each choice you watch, noticing how every discovery and each change makes you feel. Still you? More you? Less you? Better you? Worse you? And you adjust, keep moving, keep finding that better, truer you as your world and your understanding expands into places you never knew existed with the people who brought you there. There might be hiccups along the way, unexpected turns and leaps and dips and surprises. Again, you take it all in wholeheartedly, hopefully, and feel your way to your best, strongest self, trusting that you are the person for this moment, the person these people need, and that they are the people you need, too. As we've mentioned, it's been about five years since we recorded this interview with David and Kristen, and their lives have kept moving. David sent us an update on their children. He writes, Carlos will be graduating from CSI, the College of Staten Island, this month. He lives in his own apartment about a block away from us with supports and services through OPWDD, Office for Persons with Developmental Disabilities. He has some great ComHab workers who help him work on goals toward becoming more independent. We still have to keep a close eye on him, but he's enjoying his life quite a bit. John was in prison for about three or four years and has been out for about two to three years now, the longest period he has gone without being incarcerated since he was first arrested as a teenager. He lives in Indiana with his daughter. We never really know fully what's going on with John since I'm not sure he will ever be able to be fully honest with anyone. His life is challenging and difficult, which makes me quite sad if I let myself think about it, so I try not to. If I go there, it is still too emotionally devastating, so it's Kristen who handles all of this better than I do does most of the communication with him. He texts and calls her a lot, often to ask for money, but at least he's in touch. He's a loving parent to his daughter. He will mention that he learned a lot from us about how to be a good parent and that he tries to copy what we do and did. I think he sincerely means that. So even though his life is a mess, perhaps his daughter will escape the abuse and neglect he suffered as a child and be better off. I hope. Research on Rhett came to a near standstill during the pandemic setting everything back a couple of years. A devastating loss, really, when one considers how desperately a treatment or cure is needed. However, gene therapy trials for women 18 and over are slated to begin any time in Canada. Assuming those trials go well, the plan will then be to move to younger and younger ages, 
Hopefully by this time next year, there will be some good news on that front. There are currently about six drug companies working on a cure or treatment for Rhett. As for Emmeline, she is doing well, but her disease does continue to slowly progress. We now have a stair lift to get her up and down the stairs, since it is not safe for anyone but me to assist her. Her nurse tried once, and they almost fell down the stairs. Thankfully, Kristen was behind them and stopped the fall, though she also had Levi with her. I had to run up and try to untangle them all. Ridiculous. Would be funny, I suppose, if it also wasn't really quite sad. She also has more Parkinsonian type of tremors in her hands now. She can still finger feed, but drops a lot of it and sometimes really struggles to get the food into her mouth, particularly if it is something smaller like goldfish crackers. She and Levi seem to have a nice bond. He loves to snuggle up next to her when they are watching TV. She will sometimes lean over and give him a kiss. It's more of a lick since she can't master the whole puckering thing, but it's clear what she's attempting. We lived in fear of her catching COVID since children with Rhett are so very vulnerable to lung infections. When the vaccine was approved for 12 years old and up, I got confused on her birth date and got her vaccinated. She was 11. Best decision I've ever made. She's now boosted as well. Her sister Annabeth just caught COVID a couple of weeks ago. Remarkably, M did not catch it, even though they share a room. Probably helps that once we realized Annabeth had it, we were able to sequester her on her own floor of the house. Poor thing. The pandemic was disastrous for children with disabilities. Neither M nor Levi are able to learn remotely, so it was simply lost years educationally and therapeutically. They missed out on PT, OT, speech therapy, Levi's ABA therapy, etc. It all came to a halt. I have no words really to describe how incredibly challenging it was for them and for us. Levi. Levi does have profound autism caused by a mutation in his CHD8 gene. It's so far exceedingly rare with only about 1 in 10 million people being diagnosed with a CHD8 mutation. His specific mutation has only been found in one other human being so far. I'm sure that will eventually change as more people get to get genetic testing. For CHD8, there are specific features that most people with the disorder share, among them extreme anxiety, significant gastrointestinal problems, autism, etc. Levi actually has mosaicism, with 60% of his cells having the mutation and 40% not, so I suppose he would be even more profoundly affected if he were at 100%. It does mean that his mutation happens sometime after fertilization, within the first few days of embryonic development. It took a long time for me to make my peace with all we went through to get him and for him to end up with a ridiculously rare, random mutation, like lightning striking a family twice, only rarer than that. He is, however, a tremendously loving little boy, loves to snuggle, loves to connect with people, but still cannot speak. Once in a blue moon, he will say a word clear as day, but then never says it again. While he has made great progress, so to speak, he is far behind where he should be, and it is clear he will never be able to live independently. We are in the process of enrolling in a clinical trial for him with a drug that may be able to help brain development. Probably won't work, but I never lose hope for something. It definitely impacts our lives. I don't attend church anymore. Neither M or Levi tolerate, and it just became not worth it to drag them there only to have M hit me the whole time if I don't turn on her favorite show of the moment, which I can never figure out, and to have Levi yell and scream. 
We did try to tour the DC temple a couple of weeks ago. Levi started panicking, the anxiety thing, and crying and screaming. I picked him up and ran through the celestial and the other rooms on my way out. Not to see them, it was just the only path forward. He's never met most of my family since we only take him where we can drive. It can be isolating, but there are many that have it far worse, especially families that have children with profound autism who act out violently. The autism of people who can speak and advocate for themselves is a world of difference from the kind of autism which my son has. However, I have learned to love him for who he is most of the time. I'll still be holding his hand when he is 20, and we walk around the neighborhood or wherever else he wants to go. And I don't give a damn what anyone else thinks about it. Coco, les roses fleurissent. 